Welcome to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Silito. This podcast is a result of my purpose to help ambitious business owners like you avoid stress, overwhelm, and burnout in the workplace. In this podcast, I share everything I've learned about how to grow a profitable business, stay fit and healthy, maintain strong relationships, and develop the right mindset for success. So you can thrive, feel inspired, and work at your full potential. Now, if you're somebody who is looking to create an unbeatable mind, or perhaps you want to get SEAL fit, Navy SEAL fit, then you are going to love this podcast. You're going to love my guest. I am so honored to have Mark Devine on the Scale Without Burnout podcast today. Now, Mark is a creative developer of cutting-edge training programs for warriors, athletes, and professionals. His innovative programs include the integrated functional fitness program, SIL Fit, the life acceleration program, Unbeatable Mind, the integrated yoga system, Warrior Yoga, and the veteran integration program, Courage Foundation. His books include New York Times bestseller, Eight Weeks to SIL Fit, an Amazon and WSJ bestseller, The Way of the Seal, Unbeatable Mind, now in its third edition and printing, uh, Warrior Yoga and Staring Down the Wolf, um, which is fantastic, which was published in in March 2020. So absolute honor to have Mark on the show. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing very well. I appreciate you having me on. How are things in Prague? It's an absolute pleasure. Prague is um, treat me very well. We, we've had a good time here. You know, we were a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, with um, COVID, and yeah. and uh, they put some rules in place pretty quick here. Did so they, we've did, uh, they, did they make everyone wear masks really early? I think I, I saw yes. a video about Czechoslovakia, and they they did a good job because they masked up yeah. right away. Hmm. Yes, yeah, with the, absolutely. I mean, it was it was the law pretty much. Mm-hmm. We. Um, Everything shut down, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, all the hockey rinks, everything very quick. And then masks, uh, literally up until about three weeks ago, uh, you could start going to supermarkets. But we've not, I've noticed actually people start wearing masks again. People start okay. wearing them. Um, so I don't know if people are anticipating that second that wave. Second wave. Right. Yeah, yeah. And where are you? Where are you I'm based? in uh, North County, San Diego on the coast. North, nice, yeah. nice. And how's the, uh, the sunshine? Well... Sunny and warm, pretty much. <laughs> I bet, yeah, yeah. 355 days a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we pay we pay a heavy tax for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The sun, sunshine tax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful. I haven't been to San Diego. I've, I've spent some time in California, nice. um, Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, mm-hmm. that, those sort of areas. Playing some some roller yeah. hockey down there. Yeah, right. Good times. Yeah, yeah. That's so actually, let's, I, let's, I saw that you were hockey play, roller hockey. Is that a big sport in Canada? And I, I haven't heard much about that. So yeah, roller indoor, hockey. Well, certainly not big in the UK. I mean, it was like, it's unusual. So I grew up playing, you know, those typical sports. And then just my mum came home with an ice hockey stick one day and put the roller skates together. And then I just ended up catching a wave and, and playing out, in the, out there. Yeah, yeah. But it's big in Prague. It's big in Prague. Yeah. So let's talk about you. Okay. You're, you're the guest. So I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm really so used to interviewing people. So. I know. I know. Well, I forgot to mention, actually. I mean, 10 million uh, downloads now. Of Unbeatable Mind podcast, yeah, we're off which to is race. incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I mean it's a fantastic podcast, and you have such incredible guests. And you and you know you mentioned your interview skills um, or interviewing, and your interview skills are 
always always on point. You're always able to bring out the those details in people. You kind of just seek yeah. it out. Um, but I do, I do, I do want to have a conversation with you because I did find myself doing a lot of burpees in 2018 and 19 <laughs> because of you. Right. And you're I was welcome. encouraging a lot you're, of people to do welcome. them as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah we, you know, we started the Courage, I started the Courage Foundation, which is, um, I organized it to help veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress, in, in particular, those who are really in despair. Because as you know, Andrew, I don't know if all the listeners know this, but the r- roughly 22 veterans, and this isn't just US, but it's worldwide, commit suicide every single day. That's, it's isn't that, I mean, that, that's, when I heard terrible. that stat, I, it literally broke my heart. I was like, that is unbelievable. And I know that a lot of other people suffer as well, but as mm-hmm. a vet um, who came out relatively unscathed, I thought, oh, I got to do something about this. So we started the Courage Foundation to bring our Unbeatable Mind Training, which is this integrated kind of holistic approach to training mentally, physically, emotionally, and with a team, which is what these vets need. So I wanted to support these guys. And one of the ways that I figured out I could raise money was to exercise because I know how to do that really well too. And we have a big yeah. tribe at SealFit and Unbeal Mind who know how to exercise. So we, we did this crazy challenge where we said, let's do 22 million burpees to raise money and awareness. <laughs> so yeah. I, I led the charge. I bid off 120,000 in 2018. That was 300 a day. Plus we broke, yeah. a, we broke a world record. Six of us did 36,000. Thousand burpees in 24 hours. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, we raised, congratulations. We raised a quarter million dollars, and um, we still haven't hit 22 million burpees. Though we're at 21 million plus change. So this year we're wow. gonna, we're going to yeah take it across the line. Yeah, I'm sure. I've no doubt you will. It's amazing how you know when people hear that you know 300, but how you can build up the, the strength and the resilience. You know, sure. some people sign out 10 burpees is a lot, right? And then you kind of all of a sudden yeah. you've done 100 or you've done right. 10 sets of 10 and you know, and it's such a good exercise. You know, it's it really such is. a it's whole a total, body exercise. It's a total body exercise, no stone unturned. And yeah. wherever you go, you got your equipment, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, your yeah. body. You There's no excuse. It. There's no excuse, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I got to admit, well, we... though, Andrew, when, when I, you know, after that year, when I got back to my regular training, I could barely do three pull-ups, you know? And I used to be able to string 20 together, dead hang pull-ups, and, and I just lost a lot of different types of functional strength. So burpee yeah. is definitely not a complete workout. So. No, you've got to have the pull and the push, I think. Yeah, you're missing the pull. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Mark, can we just touch on a few things? You mentioned, you know, coming out, you know, you, you're in Iraq, and and I've read about how you manage that. You just mentioned coming out unscathed. Mm-hmm. And some of the things you put in place to help you emotionally, mentally, and physically. And I'd, I'd like us to get to that because mm-hmm. there's so many things that people that are listening to this, watching this, can take from it around mental resilience. And mm-hmm. so I, I really want to make sure we share some of those tools and te- techniques that you talk about. But you haven't always been a Navy SEAL, and and I I was intrigued. You know, you you've got an economics degree, an, an MBA. Mm-hmm. And you and you, one of your, your first career was a PwC in the corporate world. That's right. Yeah, I mean, can you just talk us through that whole <laughs> transition to then becoming yeah. like the the number one ranked Navy SEAL in your class uh, through your training? So interesting journey there that I'd like us to. I to think explore. I'm the only CPA who's ever become a Navy SEAL because those two are so far apart. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And, and honestly, I would rather go back to SEAL training than sit for that darn CPA exam again. 
<laughs> right, I'm sure. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what are the similarities? If you could, if you could if you could try and put a square in a round hole here a little bit, just for those that are kind of the, the corporate athlete who's thinking, I want to be, I want to be a Navy SEAL, but I'm I am stuck at the desk. <laughs> what what well, are some of the things that have helped you? Well, you, you certainly have to do things. You have to think differently, right? And this is one of the things that I really was excited to talk to you about. Like, you can be a corporate warrior, badass, and be a CPA. Like, I have no problem with that as a career path or lawyer, any career path for that matter, as long as you find deeper meaning in it and you're not just doing it for, as a job or just to earn the money. And that was one of the problems that I had. Like my meaning was missing. And, you know, and that's not uncommon. Usually in your early first careers, you're like, what am I doing this for? Is, you know, I followed my friends here or in my case, it was my family of origin, you know, from upstate New York, a little tiny town called Barneville. But my dad had a business in Utica, New York, which had handed down, I think, four generations. It was it was founded in the late 1800s called Divine Brothers. They make shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it shows you how excited I am about that business. They make shit. And, uh, but I was basically groomed to come home and, and take care, take over the family business. Right. Intellectually, psychologically groomed. You know what I mean? How that happens. It's yeah. just like there wasn't any other career or possibility that was anything remotely as good as that. Like everyone else was put down. You know, you're not going to go in the military was for losers who couldn't get a job. Academic was for, for stiff shirts. And, you know, this is how my family was. They're very negative, actually. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that growing up because I was kind of cooked like a frog in it. It took me a while right. to figure that out. Yeah. So there I go to Colgate and I get my economics degree. And then and then I get this job at Cooper's and Library, which became PricewaterhouseCoopers afterwards. And I kind of followed her down blindly thinking, yeah, I'm, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to get my MBA at NYU. I'll get my certified public accountancy certificate. I'll get four to six, eight, maybe even 10 years of phenomenal experience, maybe become a partner, then go, go back and run the family business and make a lot of money. That was the story that was running through my head. So I started the career and because of the, you know, and I'm a goal, like most Westerners anyways, actually a lot of people in the world, pretty much achievement oriented. So I was definitely an achiever. So you put that goal of getting the MBA in front of me and I'm going to go. Right? Put the goal of becoming a CPA and I'm going to go. Put the goal of learning something new and I'm going to go. And I'll, I'll be motivated just by the goal. And so I did that. And that served me well for about a year and a half. Then I started to just feel like, wow, this kind of sucks. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing the same groundhog I, I know exactly what you every mean. day. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't stand being stuffed in this suit and tie. Like what? what's the purpose of a tie anyways? I can't blow my nose on it. Like why would I even want to wear this thing? And and I'm, I'm in New York City breathing two packs of cigarettes a day. And I'm literally just hate my life. And it took me about two years to figure that out. And what saved me, Andrew, and this is kind of like probably be the segue here, what saved me was because I was an athlete, I was a really hardcore endurance athlete in college, high school and college. I was a competitive swimmer. I was a rower, road crew. I was a triathlete. And um, I kept, I wanted to keep that up. And I could not believe how many people just immediately gave up any idea of exercise in the corporate world. And they just started to see their you know, it's gotten a lot better today. I've seen in the last 30 years, but boy, back in the eighties, 
people were just radically unhealthy and the average 40 year old looked like a 60 year old. And, yeah. you know, it's really good to see things like CrossFit and seal fit and, you know, yoga and everything starts a lot more integration, isn't way it? More being, these days, you know, yeah, corporate lot, lot of, gyms and, and so right. on. Yeah. A lot more health in the corporate world, but back then it was pretty brutal. So I said, yeah. I'm not going to, that's not going to be me. So every morning I would get up at zero dark 30 and I'd run six miles. Every lunchtime when all my peers would go out and lunch and have a beer or something, I would go to the gym and bang out a high intensity workout. And then they let us off at five because they knew that we had night school. The, the school was kind of a partnership with this program I was in. So PwC didn't pay for my school, but they, it was uh, understood that I was going there and some of my peers were going there through this program. So they let us off at five to go to school and we had to be at school at like 7.30 for our first class. And so I had a little window there. Now, most people would have gone home, had dinner. I said, no, that's training time. And, uh, but I didn't know what to fill it up with until one day I was walking home on 23rd Street and I passed, I heard these shouts and screams coming from the second floor. And I looked up and there's, a, literally I'm standing under this big flag that said World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I'm like, hmm. So I go up there, I go inside to see what all the ruckus is about. And I see this, you know, like five foot four, just rock standing in the middle of the room, this Japanese rock. You know, he's just like, Ugh. but he, and he's got this really stern expression. And he's barking out, you know, uh, commands to the class. And then he says something that he finds funny and he just bursts out giggling, right? <laughs> And I'm like, what is this guy? And it turns out he was a 10th degree grandmaster wow. named Nakamura who had founded this style of karate. He had several hundred thousand students worldwide. And this was the headquarters that he taught. And what, what year was this when you? 1985. 1985. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I graduated in 85. I started the karate about um, two or three months after I graduated. Right. And, um, and I started the job literally five weeks after I graduated college. So anyways, um, I signed up on the spot and I started training with him. Well, unbeknownst to me, Nakamura was actually a Zen master too. And he taught Zen through the martial arts. Ironically, only a small handful of us really got that or really took to the Zen. We used mm -hmm. to have an hour long Zen sit every Thursday night, maybe 10 or 12 of us would do it. And he had hundreds of students at this school, hundreds, you know, and so just nobody knew about it. They didn't find it important or valuable back then. You know, they were really into the physical piece. And so I started training Zen every day, uh, 20 minutes on my little wooden bench every day. I started going to twice a year up to the Zen Mountain Monastery in Woodstock for long retreats with the, so this small group of cadre, uh, cadre of students. And boy, did that transform me. Imagine the neuroplastic effect for a 22-year-old, 23, 24 25-year-old. I, I trained for four years before joining the SEALs. So I learned how to still my mind, and I learned how to concentrate, and I learned how to do breath practices, and I learned how to visualize. And I began to practice those religiously because, not because I knew inside that they would work, but because I trusted Nakamura, because I mm -hmm. saw him. And what I saw when I watched Nakamura was a, a human being unlike any I'd ever seen in my life, like straight out of a storybook. This guy the power that this guy had and the humility and the leadership capacity and the love that he had for all of his students and for everybody. Like this guy literally bailed on one of the fastest growing um, karate systems called Kokenshai because he was sent to set up 
Kokenshai in the United States as the head instructor by the founder named Masayama. Mm -hmm. Now Masayama was a beast. He was um, known for cutting the horn off of a raging charging bull with his hand. <laughs> like who wants to try that? You want to try that? <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, is that, is that real myth? What it would it, No, no, that's I mean, real. That's real. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so, and so Nakamura decides that the, the Kokenshai is too aggressive for him. He wants to teach, you know, he wants to teach blind. He wants to teach underprivileged. He wants to teach Zen and, and Masayama says, no, 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 none of that's important. We're going to do tournament, tournament fighting. We're going to create the hardest and baddest people in the world. And Nakamura said, that's not what I'm about. So he left. And they actually tried to kill him. You know, he got shot. You know, it was really big drama. But he finally got out of that system and started Sado, which was really integrative, you know. So he taught everybody. And, and it was a balanced mind, body, spirit approach. So rare to find a martial art that really had that original root. So this is a developmental path to develop the total person. And I just stumbled into it and it changed my life in a big way. Now, what happened over time while sitting on the bench, once I, my mind started to calm down and I was able to concentrate for longer periods of time, I really then naturally dropped into what's called mindfulness or mindful awareness. Now, it, what I now know in the way I teach this is that if you, if you just sit down to try to practice mindfulness, you, you literally will just grease the grooves of your dysfunctional thinking deeper and deeper. But you, so you've got to be able to create this big space in your mind between the thinking and the emotional patterns and who's doing the watching, the observing. I call that the witness. And that happened to me naturally. Nakabora didn't teach that to me, but training over three, you know, two, three, four years, this started to happen. About so through repetition that you yeah, through the repetition, sort of stumbled, stumbled upon, upon it. it. And, right. It just, right. My, my okay. brain just kind of shifted and I opened up more into the right brain and the interaction yeah. with the right brain, left brain. And it's the right brain that, that houses or or contextualizes the witnessing uh, aspect. Uh, you of know, the, people are trying to do hallucinogenic drugs to get to that that stage. I think you know it's yeah, becoming yeah. a pra practice, and you can which has its pitfalls. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't recommend that as a spiritual path. Maybe as just no. a one time experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what and what I witnessed was that story that I yeah. talked about earlier, and I recognized that that wasn't my story. That I was living my parents' right. story. And that yeah. my parents lived their parents' story and it's probably been going on for many generations. Yeah. And so I started to ask better questions that if, if that's not my story, if that's not my life and I'm living basically a fraud right now and that explains why I think it kind of sucks. What is my life? What's my purpose? What's my calling? And ironically, I also learned in that moment that if you ask that question, you'll get the answer. See, most people never ask the question. And they're too distracted and their brain is moving too fast and too full of fear and negativity for them to really have the stillness to be able to hear the answer. So I asked the question. I had I found the stillness to hear the answer. And literally, it came to me as a feeling and also some imagery of being a warrior, like a, an elite warrior. Now, mm -hmm. I, I have done ayahuasca before. And in my ayahuasca ceremony, I was given the vision that I've been a warrior for many lifetimes. And that this lifetime was a little bit different. This was the time for me to put down the gun and to pick up the pen and to become a teacher. Isn't that kind of cool? Because that's exactly what's yeah. happened, right? So you know, can I yeah. can we can we can I just take step in there? Because what I'm getting from from all of this, and for people watching and listening, kind of understand the whole picture there. Because you, you know, you look at your record, you know, at 
you know, with the Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. Some somehow you you managed to bring together the that kind of Eastern philosophy, right? With the physical side, so not in a not. I mean, there's certainly a spiritual element, but there's this kind of physical warrior element to it. That's right. Strength, power, mm -hmm. and calm. Right. And there's a couple of things that I'm kind of what's going through my mind, which is it's a bit chicken and egg, you know, which kind of, which came first, you know, you, you kind of had this message that came to you. And then you also mentioned earlier that you came out of Iraq and your time in with the Navy SEALs unscathed. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, how much of that is such a, you know, an influence on that ability I, to come out, you know, without the trauma that, that many people have, have suffered with that you, you yeah. mentioned. That's a really, I think that the, the practices had a profound effect on my ability to, you know, get through combat relatively unscathed. When I say relatively, I think everyone who serves in the military has some micro trauma. And now studies are just like football players. You can't be a professional football player or probably even a hockey player without some mental micro trauma in the brain. And it's really good, really good need to get that addressed. And I'm actually have worked on it. And I'm continuing to work on it to make sure that it doesn't affect me in the future because it could lead to, you know, problems down the road. So just get that out there. If you've been in the military or been clashing heads in any type of sport, you need to go get a brain scan and do some, you know, electro stim or, you know, um, hyperbaric work. And that will heal it, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so back to the, the question. Um, nature versus nurture. Now, my nature was not to be, I wasn't like a super aggressive aggro person, like a lot of Navy SEALs are. And that was largely because um, the way I was brought up, there was a lot of violence and kind of some abuse in my family. So I kind of turned inward and, and I said, anger and violence is not for me. And um, mm. that had its pros and its cons. The cons was I didn't really know how to express myself or anger. And then secondarily, because I lived in upstate New York, we spent our summers in the Adirondacks on Lake Placid. So here I am growing up as an athletic dude, and I would just absolutely crave just heading out on the trails alone and like running up an Adirondack mountain and just sitting on the peak, you know, for an hour and then running down. What an extraordinary experience that was. So a lot of alone time, I got really comfortable being alone in nature and being quiet in nature. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't fear the stillness. That really served me well when I began to meditate. And that's why I was also drawn to endurance sports. I think, you know, I could, you know, swim back and forth in the pool and my mind wouldn't, go crazy because I was able to lock in on a mantra and my breath and whatnot. So I think my nature was naturally, nature was naturally, that makes sense, a kind of geared toward um, more integrative approach to training and development. And then it was Nakamura and also my experimentation with visualization and positive self-talk. Because I literally had, another thing that I saw in my meditation, the storyline was how negative it was and then how that showed up in my life as like sarcasm and like false humility. And, you know, as a, as a teen and young adult, I was like, I was embarrassed about how I acted. And I drank too much because my family was an alcoholic family. And I was like, holy crap, look at those patterns. And so I said, I've got to, I've got to override those patterns. I've got to, you know, change the negative to a positive. I got to change fear and to courage. Right. And so I began to practice of literally transmuting my negative energy into positive energy. Anytime I detected something negative come up, I would zap it like mentally with a lightning bolt and I would redirect it to something positive, something that would be productive. This is actually one of the, one of the core tools of unveiled mind, you know, transmuting negative to positive. 
Mm -hmm. Ironically, I've learned since learned, and my belief is that we all have all the positive qualities accessible to humans. The Buddhists say there's like 82 of them, but the negative ones are are largely learned, except for raw fear. You know, raw fear of existential uh, threat and fear of abandonment. Those things, or fear of absence of love. So you're saying these are more hardwired, yeah, so, genetic, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. those are hardwired. Yeah. Yeah, fear flight, of flight type stuff. Fight, flight. Yeah, yeah. But the rest yeah. of the rest of the negative shit is pretty much learned, usually in mm. usually in the first twenty one years of life, but especially in the first seven. Mm. And um, yeah, they say the first seven years will dictate the next ninety seven. You know what I mean? <laughs> so mm -hmm. things like um, anxiety or shame or you know um, anger, um, guilt, all mm. these things you know come from family of origin and, and you know how we grow up. So I had to override all that shit. That was really profound. And so now um, I'm learning transmutation of negative to positive energy. I now call it feeding the courage wolf. Uh, Nakamura taught me breath control. And I took that into my seated practice. So I would do this practice called, I now call box breathing, which has been around for centuries. But I did this before I learned yoga and pranayama, and I just yeah, did well, anyone listening to this will say, well, that's Andrew's thing, isn't it? And I just want to make very <laughs> clear that my inspiration for box breathing came from Mark Divine. In fact, I, I referenced you in my book. Oh, when that's I talk really about cool. Box, box breathing. Yeah, box breathing. So you're, you're the first person I, I heard it from. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I thought probably the person who popularized it, but like I said, there, you know, I've heard references to other soft guys doing square breathing, same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, and of course, yoga, pranayama, there's a, a hundreds of different ratios that will have different effects on your energy system and your mind. And, and I use a few because, you know, you only need a few. But box breathing is my go-to. It's an everyday practice. But I started doing that because it was natural for me to hold my breath and, and to feel kind of the spaciousness that comes from the holds because I was a competitive swimmer. Because in swimming is like box breathing. Inhale, yeah. hold, right? right? Mm -hmm. Exhale, yeah, inhale, course. Yeah. hold. Yeah. And so I... I'm putting this together, these four really powerful skills, which I, I developed through the, the four years I was in Nakamura. But by the way, four years I was in New York, MBA, CPA, black belt in karate, all of them, all of them earned in November of 1989. And in November of 1989, I was on a bus to officer Canada school to become an, an <laughs> officer in the Navy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. But the best That's thing crazy. about it were these skills I developed. Breath control, box breathing, yeah. feeding the courage wolf, which is basically taming my mind and curating the negative out and replacing it with positive, positive internal dialogue, positive attitude, optimism about the future, and the ability to continually set up vigilance for negative forces entering my life, whether they come from other people or the outside media. I mentioned earlier before we started this, I haven't watched TV in 25 years. <laughs> and I don't read the news. I just scan the headlines and I play opposite day. I said, okay, the headline says this, it's probably that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, probably a good rule, actually. Yeah, I, mean, right. I, I, I honestly think, I used to, when I lived in England, I'd get up in the morning, BBC would go on, watch it, go out feeling just fed up because, it, you know, just been yeah. bombarded with negativity. Right. I haven't watched the news or anything, you know, here because I'm in Prague, we don't have the, the you know, so, and I actually think that that ignorance is bliss it really is, is. <laughs> is real, you know, in some, in many, in many ways. Anyway. Yeah. 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 yeah so there, there's the first two skills that I had developed. The third was, and this was not taught by Nakamura, but was imagery. 
the use of imagery and visualization. And I first learned this from my swim coach at Colgate, who had me swim my um, 200 meter breaststroke with a stopwatch in my mind. And I did it for a year and a half or so. Had a pretty profound experience with that, um, which taught me that visualization is incredibly powerful and that everything that we create in our life comes from some imagery. So that if you can take control of that imagery and create powerful imagery around your future, then you will create that future. I mean, it's really basically the law of manifestation with imagery, but there's very specific skills you can deploy to, to power it up and make it happen. So I learned imagery and I started practicing it every day um, as part of my Zen practice. At the beginning, I found that imagery helped me stabilize my concentration. An image is a concentration. You concentrate on it, then you're, you're drowning out all else. So it made sense. And then I would also visualize, or I created an image of me as a Navy SEAL going through SEAL training and graduating down to the time of day and getting my Navy mm -hmm. SEAL Trident pin. And then I would practice it. So that's the difference between imagination and visualization. Visualization is yeah. a practice. Imagination is the creation of an image. What, what do you think is the key difference there for people listening in who want to make that distinction? Well, what, what's, is there well, a different feeling? What, what's yeah, going on? It's slightly different. One is very creative state and playful. Mm -hmm. And you might even draw some pictures. And, and the point is you have to like to create an image of something that doesn't exist. Imagination. Some people have that innately and some people need to develop that, right. but everyone can do it. And so it's yeah. like, it's like building something new. If you don't like it, you can take some parts away, you can change it, you know, and, and sometimes you also have to do some emotional work because you might create this image that is a wish, but you're, you know, let's say you were brought up with a sense of shame or unworthiness, then you're just going to torpedo that vision because you're not going to feel it. So you've got to see it in your mind, you've got to dialogue about it, and then you've got to feel it. And if you can do those three, then you'll actually believe it. Then the visualization will start to work for you. So I actually, this happened to me where I started visualizing myself as a Navy SEAL once I decided that I was going to be a Navy SEAL after I learned that I was meant to be a warrior. See, that, by the way, we're back up. when I was on the bench and I had that, those, that sensation that I was meant to be a warrior, it wasn't that I was meant to be a Navy SEAL. Right, because your calling is never something that you do; is something that you be. Right. So I was meant to be a warrior, because the spirit didn't give a shit. Maybe seal. I could have been a warrior as a CPA, but I was meant to be a warrior. And then I had to say, well, how? Well, because I'm a super athletic guy, elite athlete. Because I love adventure. I'm a risk taker, and I love challenging myself beyond measure. I was like, there, there was a, only a couple organizations are doing things that really fit all those criteria. And the Navy SEALs was right at the top of the list. Right. So anyway, so I visualized myself as an, becoming a Navy SEAL, going through training, graduating, and I did it every day, about nine months into that practice. And I hadn't even gotten into the Navy yet. In fact, the recruiter thought it was crazy. He said, you know, you got better, there's only, we're only going to take between zero and two people into the Navy SEALs from the civilian world which is one of the paths, it's the, it's the tightest path because they take most of the officers from Naval Academy and ROTC. Mm -hmm. they, they take about 20 a year through that. So they're gonna take zero to two, depending on how many they had through those other sources. He said, statistically, you got a better chance of becoming an astronaut. I'm like, eh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm not gonna be an astronaut, but I really wanna be a Navy SEAL. So I'm going for it anyways, put my application in. 
So I started visualizing it every day after my Zen sits in the morning and also on Thursday evenings. Nine months into this, Andrew, I had this like overwhelming sensation that I didn't desire or wish to be a Navy SEAL, but I was a Navy SEAL. Like it had already happened in some quantum field. And right around you know two or three days after that feeling came over me, that feeling of certainty, the recruiter called and said, you're not gonna believe this, Mark. You son of a gun, but you got this. You got this. You got one of the, one of the billets. And when I showed up at Bud's Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training in Coronado, California, and um, it was like after Officer Cannon School, so I think it was March or April of 19, no, yeah, 1990. And I walked onto the compound. I had this sensation that I had been there before. So all those skills, the four, by the way, the fourth skill, I'm gonna, and I'll come back to Bud's in a second. The fourth skill that I learned because of my karate practice, and I had to really deploy this um, in my black belt test where I had to fight every single black belt in the tri-state area who was a Sato student. And there were like hundreds of them. And you know, for, for four or five hours, I was just one fight after another. And the fourth skill is micro goals, like radical task focusing on the one thing you can do right now to succeed without worrying about anything else. It's a way to stay present and focused on a task. That's an important task. So when I went to Bud's, I took those four skills and I said, this is my money bag. These skills are going to be what keep me here alive and radically focused on my mission of becoming a Navy SEAL every day. And the other thing is I lear I've learned a few other really cool things from Nakamura that really the SEALs kind of shared as a warrior culture. One was, and he, he would give these Zen lectures after our Thursday sits. And one, he, he wrote on the board in his little kanji, squeaky, you know, chalk, white chalk. He wrote, one day, one lifetime. And then he gives like a little Dharma talk. And he talks about how for a warrior, every day is precious because it may, number one, it may be your last. And so you want to make sure that you do everything with total awareness and that's where we got the saying, the way you do everything is the way you do anything. Do it with 100% excellence and awareness, regardless of what, who you're talking to, do it with awareness. Could be the garbage man or it could be the CEO or what task. If you're taking out the garbage, do it with awareness, right? If you're giving a presentation, do it with awareness and excellence. That was, and also there's going to be an opportunity during this day for you to grow and transform. So pay attention and look for it. And even the Buddha said you can find enlightenment in a single breath if you pay close enough attention. <laughs> so that really gave me a powerful way to look at each day. Like every day is an opportunity for excellence because it might be your last. The second thing was today is a self-contained life. Like there is absolutely nothing that you will experience in the rest of your life that you can't experience today except for maybe some doing thing that you have to train for, like jump out of a balloon at a hundred thousand feet. You know? and, and do you mean like a feeling or a, yeah, like a, like a human humanity? Like what does it mean to be human? Right. You can experience yeah. it today. Yeah. You can experience the worst of depravity or you can experience the highest of love and joy and bliss. So is it a choice? Is so it's about saying? choice, right? Okay. It's about choice. So mm -hmm. choose wisely. And so that, that taught me that the warrior must control the only thing he can control, which is the interior, the thoughts, 
that you're allowed in and the thoughts that you allow yourself to have and the choices that you make as a result of those thoughts. So this helps you to be non-reactionary to other people's needs, non-reactionary to preconditioned programming from family of origin or epigenetics. Control what you can control. And then to allow whatever's to happen to happen and then to navigate it gracefully based upon the quality of your thoughts and the quality of your, your attention. So I through that practice of one day, one lifetime, when I brought that to SEAL training, all this started to come together because the breath, as you know, box breathing keeps you in an anti-arousal state. You're always triggering your parasympathetic nervous system. You're staying nice and calm. Everybody else, all the other SEAL students are getting triggered into sympathetic fight or flight constantly because that's what the instructor's job is, right? To scare They're the They're trying to induce that, aren't they? They're, They're trying, trying to, to see it, right. how you cope with that, right. Yeah. Right, and, and it's also being induced by the just the crushing load of training. Like yeah. it's just yeah. brutal and punishing and day in and day out. 15, 20 hour days, sometimes around the clock. But I would imagine just the this the environment, just going into that environment and knowing what's ahead right. is enough to trigger some people, you know, into it, that. It triggered everybody. Like, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I felt it the very first day and I was like, okay, this is game on, right? We have 185 hardcore students here who want one of yeah. basically ended up being 19 slots. And um, and so everyone's, you know, everyone's super competitive, everyone's fear-based. And I started to just breathe into that. And I activated my box breathing. And it, because I had trained for a while, you know, almost yeah. four years, it came to me naturally. And I just started to feel really calm. And then they organized, organized us into teams of seven. We called boat crews. And so I brought that calmness to my boat crew. And I said, listen, guys, we're going to get through this. Just let's breathe into this. Let's be calm. Everyone else is going to be freaking out, but we're going to be the calm ones. Let's be the... Can I, can I ask there, did you step into leadership or were you allocated a role because yeah, it was both uh, but i was allocated a role because officers will be the boat crew leaders so that was right, my okay. first real leadership really my first true leadership um endeavor okay. was to be that boat crew leader of of seven other individuals right. so i um and also in karate with the humility that i that i learned from nakamura i really knew that this wasn't a, about me i did want to be a seal and i wanted to get my trident but with my team, I knew that I would be way stronger if we all did this together, right? Like if I had mm -hmm. six other guys watching my back and really supporting me and, and caring about my success, mm -hmm. and I would care about them and we all care, then there's a good chance that we could all get through this. Right, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. When we graduated um, six months later, it's now nine months, they add the, the SEAL qualification training to it, but for us, it was six months later, and we did our uh, SEAL qualification at a SEAL team, I stood there on graduation day with my boat crew. So out of the 19 people who, uh, 185 started, 19 finished, I was the honor man of my class, number one graduate, and all my boat crew was there. We made it. And we also made it through Hell Week. We got secured early because of our performance. So we had a, a few hours to get dry and to come out and watch the rest of the class just <laughs> totally get pounded. So yeah, it was the breath control, which brought me presence, taking yeah. my eyes off myself, putting them on my team and, and putting them first, their needs first, mm -hmm. was really powerful. The um, managing my internal dialogue and emotional states. So they were always positive and optimistic and I never let the fear wolf or the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, or I can't do this, get me down. And basically I said, you know, if the instructors want me out of here, they're gonna have to 
drag me out of here in a body bag. It is not happening. So I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to stay positive. And that was a moment to moment thing. I had to constantly be vigilant, right? And I helped my team do it too. And then because I had visualized for so long becoming a Navy SEAL, that, that image was always kind of in the back of my mind. I could always kind of just press play and I could see myself graduating. And I had that same sense of destiny, right? Yeah. So yeah. the imagery was there. And then because I had learned um, through the fighting to just stay focused on that one thing, because if you don't, you're going to take a roundhouse to the head. So I just stayed focused on the one thing the instructors were telling me to do. Go pick that up. Okay, pick it up. What's next? You know, <laughs> don't yeah. think about, you know, and, and especially Hell Week. Like Hell Week, Hell Week starts Sunday afternoon and it doesn't stop until Friday afternoon. And you don't sleep and you train your ass off hardcore for yeah. six days straight. And most people by day, the end of day one are thinking, how the heck am I going to make it till Friday? It's Monday and I'm just utterly exhausted, sleep deprived, cold, wet, sandy, absolutely miserable. How am I going to make it to Friday? And they've already lost because they're thinking yeah. about Friday. Yeah. Instead yeah. of me, I'm thinking, okay, instructors say now get in that boat and, and paddle through the surf. Okay, I can do that. And this is what you mean by the micro goals. Just focus on the... Just yeah. focus on what's in front of you right now. The one thing. Yeah, there's yeah. something there, isn't there, for leaders, you know, the CEO of an organization who is overwhelmed with right. the amount of things that are around them and different decisions they've got to make. Right. And what I'm hearing from you is just focus on one thing right now. Right. You know, now the leader with, with the other three things, with the other right. three skills you, know, you talked about. Right. The other three skills keep you um, positive, keep you calm and help you win in your mind because you've seen the win and it's clear to you. The fourth skill though for, for executives is really, really critical because everyone is task saturated and overcommitted and they think that's normal. And so what we teach is that stop that, right? Start to, right. to off task, offload tasks, start to get very clear, like with the Pareto analysis, 80-20, what is it that really delivers the most results for you? And then do that and then give right. everything else to someone else or just say no. So really simplify the number of tasks you take on. But also, um, like in the SEAL training, I didn't have to define what to do. I was told what to do. But as a leader, as a business leader, I have to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have a, a methodology or a decision tool to help you choose the right targets or the right goals. And so that's become a practice in and of itself. Like, how do you really know what's the best and biggest opportunity for you? The hell yeses, right? And most people say, if it's not, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. But how do you know if it's a hell yes, right? So we have a process for helping executives really define the hell yeses and then saying hell no to everything else so that they can stay radically focused. And then that, right. and then when they're done with that project, and maybe maybe to be fair, there's just two or three, and then um, then you move on to the next target yeah. and the next target, and you lick. It's a nice one, isn't it? The hell yes, because the hell yes, I think, and I've heard you talk about this, and I've, I think Tim Ferriss referenced you as well talking about it. That it it does generate more of a gut feel, yes. I think, right. yeah, than 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 a logical decision yeah, it, you might it, have some data but right the question itself does activate your intuition muscle let's just say yeah what what's important for me i learned like in combat especially that 
you want to use the rational mind, but you got to avoid the bias of the rational mind. Right. And so that's where a decision tool can come in handy. Like my decision tool for target selection, I call FITS. It's very simple. Asking these four questions. Does the target or goal fit mm -hmm. me or my team in terms of our skills, our capacity, our culture, mm -hmm. our desire, right? Then the I is how important is this relative to the other potential targets or goals on my list, right? How important is it? And then the third is, is the timing right? That's the T. Because a lot of times we take on targets that are um, we're not ready for or that we've already kind of passed, passed us by, we're too late for. Right. And then the last one is really critical. This is simplicity. Is it? Can we articulate it and define the mission plan in simple enough terms that we have a reasonable chance of success? And that's another problem I think with a lot of executives is they allow their teams to overcomplicate things. This is why Steve Jobs is so successful. Mm -hmm. simple, simple is not easy, but it, when you get to simple, it's always better, right? Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. That's a really important skill to move beyond task saturation, but then to tap into the gut. And that's where that, if it's not a hell yes, you want to use the logical, but avoid bias with the decision models and then test it and fact yeah. check it with your gut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does distinguish, doesn't it? Very well, very easily between something. Sometimes I, I it's a, <laughs> not a business decision, but I had the same with hockey recently mm -hmm. where someone had asked me to play in a in the in league and and I was I immediately said yes like of course I'm going to play but I walked away and then I kind of thought about it right and all of a sudden I was doubting it and, I, and then this kind of idea of hell yes came out and I and I, and I thought it's not a hell yes <laughs> do you know what I mean so it was much easier for me to go back and say you know what I I I'm, I don't think I can commit to this you know this right. is it's going to occupy too much time for me and and so on right. and I've started using it more regularly. I've noticed it's made a real difference in some of my decision-making and made it much easier to be decisive right. on, on certain things. Right. That's great. And, and, and a lot of people, if they, once they say yes, they have trouble going back and saying no because they don't right. want to let people down yeah. or, you know, they're afraid to have that conversation. But I also think the box breathing, you know, you talked about these four areas and how I think that, you know, the box breathing plays such a role in helping those decisions manifest, you know, when right. you get that kind of, comes to you and you go oh right because the box breathing is is really training your brain most people you know usually on a podcast i just talk about the arousal control benefit of box breathing that's the physiological effect but since your brain is a is an organ physiologically it has the effect of of calming your brain waves down from mm -hmm. like gamma high beta which is like ah, racing thoughts down to kind of a high alpha low beta which is more creative more spacious the other thing it does, because you're breathing through your nostrils, you're stimulating, right, the not the nadi system, you know, which is the energy system, and you're. This is more yoga philosophy, but it's utterly true. Is you're you're not just breathing oxygen, you're breathing life force, electricity, which is also consciousness, right? It's it's consciousness out here. You breathe it in and becomes consciousness in here. And the fact check for that is to stop breathing. See how long your consciousness lasts. <laughs> People think consciousness is the is the brain, but it's not. It's it's like this. We yeah. breathe it in. It's life force. Yeah. So you breathe in, and obviously betraying a little bit of my Eastern training here, you breathe in life force, which stimulates when you breathe through your nostrils, especially when you do something like alternate nostril breathing, it stimulates uh, your brain, and it helps the um, it helps the 
right and left hemisphere communicate through their corpus callosum. And so now you're using much more of a balanced mm -hmm. mind or what we call whole mind. And it's the right hemisphere that communicates with the heart mind and the gut mind. Yeah, it's more emotive. Yeah, it's more of yeah. emotional. And the corpus callosum you mentioned, that's what connects that's the, the left and right hemisphere. That's right. That's the barrier. Okay. And yeah. um, just like anything else, you can train to have the signals pass through that barrier, across that barrier, however that happens. I'm not a neuroscientist. Um, more effectively and efficiently. Whereas most people train, most Westerners have been so overly left brain dominant. They, they really don't even know what the right brain is. Except all the, yeah, all the subconscious programming kind of filters up through the right brain. And then it plays out, you know, it wreaks havoc on a lot of people's do you, lives. Do you think that um, we see in corporate, a lot of people do well because of their left brain thinking. They, they, mm -hmm. they, they, they show good results as managers because what you're talking about is true leadership and something you right. just stumbled and you know listening to you speak you know you've not mentioned anything about situational leadership transactional mm -hmm. management you know yeah, right. <laughs> there's you know it's yeah. all the things that you know we put someone gets into a leadership role after 20 years or so of doing really well gets into a leadership role and then says well hang on a minute now you want me to think this way right. so they put them on an emotional intelligence course for a week yeah, which <laughs> you talked about four years of, of Zen work, you know, right. that prepared you for being a Navy SEAL. I mean, you know, it's there's a lot of work to be done and to undo those patterns that you've talked about and it takes those work, things that have been indoctrinated over years, you know, yeah. it's it's a lot of self-work. It is a lot of self-work, and that's that's the biggest job of a leader is self-work. Right. Yeah. And when it when it, the steering down the wolf, the book you mentioned that I, that came out in March. My experience is if the leader can engage the team in that work, then everyone benefits. Then you get like a 20 times, you know, almost logarithmic uh, acceleration of growth. So a team that grows together thrives together. A team that is not committed to growth uh, will then kind of sink to the lowest common denominator. And a leader, so a leader committed to growth is, has trouble leading a team that's not committed to growth because they're like two ships passing the night. Right. And when I say committed to growth, I mean like deeply committed to the type of growth that we're talking about here, overcoming your emotional shadow, training right, left hemisphere, brain, spiritual development, integration of all of that so that you're a more whole person and more a more whole person or a whole person leads differently. It leads, they lead from the heart and the mind merged into their actions in service. And that service is world centric, right? It's not like I'm American, Americans exceptional, we're better and better than anyone else. And so I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna serve America and nobody else. Uh -uh. Mm. Like world centric, because we're all interconnected. We're interconnected with mother earth. We need to take care of mother earth and heal mother earth or else we'll be gone anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so wholeness integration as a leader is an imperative, right? It becomes almost something that is, it's just so urgent. It's as urgent as eating and sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so you want to engage your team in that growth as well, because you'll, you'll thrive more and your, your organization will serve more powerfully mm -hmm. and also serve more world centrically and with more care and compassion. And that's what the world needs. Right. Yeah. So to me, leadership is all about depth of character and, and wholeness as a human being. It doesn't matter what strategy and tactics you learn, like situational awareness. In <laughs> fact, those, I call those horizontal skills right. and I call this type of growth, vertical growth. And so the more you grow vertically, the better you're going to be able to deploy those horizontal skills anyways, because you'll have a greater perspective yeah, right? yeah. and more connection. Love that. Love that.
that's uh, that's great. Um, I we could go for another forty-five minutes easy. Yeah, here. So sure I, I'm, could. I'm conscious of our time, you know, and I want to make sure that we um, cover off a few things before we wrap up. Okay. Um, the four the four skills you mentioned are they in one of your? They're in yeah, one they're, of your, they're both uh, in the way of the seal and um, unbeatable mind. Unbeatable mind is kind of my overarching philosophy that I developed. Starting with Zen, and I they innovated on the on the seals. In fact, I, you know, you asked a question that I never finished answering: is how did I get out of the seals and combat unscathed? It's because of these skills. Yeah. Because they make you pre-resilient, right? They they make you very very calm, and you're always bleeding off stress. And so, like even in combat, I was practicing my version of yoga. I call Kokoro yoga. Kokoro means heart and mind merged into action, and it was starting with breath practice and then my integrated movement through asana or the yoga. And then I did a functional fitness workout and some fighting stuff, integrating, you know, fitness, martial movements and yoga. And then mm -hmm. I would end with my meditation and a visualization. So it was all in one package. It took me about mm -hmm. an hour and a half, did it every single day when I was in Iraq. And I, I tell you what, I actually came out of that combat zone feeling pretty darn good. A lot of my peers were just absolutely crushed, you know, with, <laughs> fatigue, combat fatigue, and you know, I really needed some serious recovery at home. This is what we try to teach SEALs today. And the SEAL program now, uh, they, they recommend my books on Beal Mind and the way the SEAL, and they're starting to bring these these four awesome. skills. As I was going to ask, you know, how receptive people were of, of today. I mean, today think, what's this guy going on about with his Eastern philosophy? Yeah, you know, resistance <laughs> to some of the things you, in the there early days. There was a lot of people who just poo-pooed it. There were a couple yeah. people interested. I never really got anyone in my day, you know, yeah. to do it with me. But now, you know, they're finally taking it seriously. Finally. Right. Believe it or not. And so the pararescue and the SEALs are bringing in these skills that I'm we've been talking about. Now, of course, they're not, they're not going to contract with me. They're not calling it unbeatable mind. I've been training the SEALs, you know, this stuff for now for uh, like, since 2006, so 14 years. But what they're gonna, what they're doing is going and talking to all the PhDs and the academics, <laughs> and then they'll, they'll come back and, and they'll implement the big four skills and, and think right. they're better, better than themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. pretty funny. So you know, I you know, I I started following some of your work. I think it, was, it would have been 2017, and so and I, and I wrote my book, and the book itself was kind of like therapy in a way for me you know breaking some unwanted patterns and going through that whole process and i think i feel like i've come through this past four months unscathed yeah you know we yeah. we had maybe well we had at least 20 leadership programs you know at the beginning of the year probably going to be our best year ever you know mm -hmm. all face to face mm -hmm. you know, germany czech republic uk i mean it was going to be a really good good year no, gone, yeah. right? gone. But I, I just thought, ah, I didn't, I didn't, I had a little bit of anxiety, but, but I think through the breathing and the tools and techniques that you, you've shared over the years, I think have really helped, you know, navigate this time. I'm sure there are lots of people that have benefited from learning from you and, and helping navigate this time. Yeah, I mean, you, we call it thriving in VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yeah. This is obviously VUCA, but COVID-19 and everything, but it's not going to go away. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. Mm. So when you deploy these skills and practice them every day, you take control, like I said earlier, of the one thing you actually can control. And it's what's going on inside. And then you, it makes you much more nimble and adaptable when things change outside of you. 
which is the world around you. So as COVID lockdown came, you know, we did probably the same thing you did. We all of our events shut down and we said, okay, we got to pivot to online training, just like everyone else did. Right. Fortunately, we had already been using Zoom. We were already working remotely. We already had three online programs. So we just, you know, yeah. just kind of kicked it up a notch and we've been thriving. Really seamless. Yeah. Yeah. Seamless. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and so for Kokora, just just finish off with that the, the the Hell Week course that you run. Anyone that's interested in putting themselves through that, I did look at it myself. I have to say, I just I was trying to think what what would be my why to get through that, and yeah. I, I think you just got to have such a strong. You got to have a strong why. Account. Believe it or not, I don't think I've ever said this publicly because, but we just made the decision. I made the decision to retire Kokoro. No, not okay. because of COVID. And, and even, you know, we don't know when we'll be able to hold our next Kokoro camp. It was going to be in October. It's probably not going to be. We're scheduled for March. We hope to do it. But um, we're either going to have one or just two more events. And the reason I decided uh, is that we had an individual die of a heart attack the moment the event ended um, back in 2016. The event secured. It's over. He fell back. Now he had an athlete's heart. Poor guy, um, amazing athlete. Mm. So it was a pre-existing condition that he didn't know about. Right. His why was to do to finish Kokoro or die trying, just like I said in Buds. I'm going to finish Buds or die trying. And uh, <clears throat> it took me a few years to really reflect on that. And I thought, you know what? Other people have that kind of goal and that that motivation. And um, it's okay in a military setting. If you want to be an elite warrior, you know, it's okay to die in training and it happens. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I wasn't willing to have that happen again on my watch. No. It's training is so hard that, you know, if the training is so hard that you could die of a heart attack, then, mm. you know, someone else can, can run it. So we're yeah. going to retire Kikora. I'm very proud of that event. People have been radically transformed, you know, since we launched it in 2007. Yeah. We've run 55 of them. But, uh, and everything's nothing is meant to last forever, right, Andrew? That's right. That's right. There was always a new chapter, right? Always a new chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Mark, you've been an incredible guest. Thank and, you. I, and I just thank you so much for your story. Okay, so for people that want to find out more about you, you've got you know your books and, books, and everything else. Yeah. So um where where should we send people to to learn more? Well, personal website, markdevine.com is kind of a okay. collect a collect all. Uh, the training for executives in the coaching program, we have like 400 certified coaches now and our goal is 5,000. That's at unbeatablemind.com. So if anyone listening is really interested in learning these skills and teaching others, either as an internal coach at their organization or as a life coach or executive coach, unbeatablemind.com. And then SealFit, where we're talking about the Kokoro and our SealFit hardcore training is sealfit.com. Yeah, great. And I'm on Instagram at realmarkdivine. Great, yeah. Yeah, you've been you've been uh, you've been great on Instagram. You've been doing uh, your dailies, and or I think it's moved to weekly now or something. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that one yeah. didn't survive contact with reality. For I think I did like fifty-seven or so in dailies, and I was like, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to do this every it's day. Intense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I look forward to uh, meeting you in in person at some point in the future. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much, Thanks. Andrew. Thanks very yeah. much. You take care. Ooh, yeah. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. For more free resources and content on how to grow and lead your business and become the best version of yourself, 
head over to andrewsilito.com. 